When it is not yet day, I am walking on centuries of dead chestnut leaves in a place without grief, though the oriole out of another life warns me that I am awake. In the dark, while the rain fell, the gold chanterelles pushed through a sleep that was not mine, waking me so that I came up the mountain to find them. Where they appear, it seems I have been before. I recognize their haunts as though remembering another life. Where else am I walking, even now, looking for me? Welcome to the Fabled Remedies Podcast number three. Consuming the God, but music eating demon, <laughs> fasting and detoxification. As always, we invite you to join us on a silly and sacred journey into the mysterious. Our goal at Fabled Remedies is to create a safe community to explore far out ideas and celebrate the wisdom in the weird. My name is Grizzly, and with me as always, I have my fellow fabulist and the goddess that calls my seas to stir, Lucy. Hello. Today we have another fantastic show for you all, and ask if you enjoy what we do and want to see us keep putting out free quality content. To please follow, like, and share our podcasts and websites to any and all of your social media accounts. We want to see our community grow and blossom into a fun and safe place to share and explore the mystical situation we find ourselves in. So go over to fabledremedies.com and check out our store for all kinds of artwork and products made by yours truly. And please email us with any strange or paranormal stories you'd like to share. We would love to start featuring some of our listeners' stories on the show. So to kick off the show today, Lucy hit us with another beautifully spoken piece. Could you go ahead and share with the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, the piece from the beginning is called Looking for Mushrooms at Sunrise, and it's by the poet W.S. Merwin from back in 1967. My dad gave me a compilation of his poems as a gift, but this particular piece always strikes me on multiple levels. So not only for the imagery of the pre-dawn forest, uh, there's also the discussion of the ideally symbiotic relationship between humans and local plants, which here used for nutrition or medicine, both of which chanterelles qualify for because they are super nutritionally dense and also they are anti-inflammatory and antibacterial. And then beyond that, there's even another layer here about reincarnation, parallel universes, and the eternal quest for knowledge of the divine self. So it's a lot to pack into a few sparse lines, but such is the power of poetry. And I thought it would set the tone for our show today. You know, quite a few diverse topics, but everything is all relating to the idea of nourishment. So I could think of no better way to start the podcast than to talk about Hippocrates. Hippocrates was a Greek physician who is considered one of the most outstanding figures in the history of medicine. 
He is traditionally referred to as the father of medicine in recognition of his lasting contributions to the field, such as the use of prognosis and the clinical observation, the systematic categorization of diseases, or the formulation of humoral theory, including the four humors which we will definitely cover in a future show. The Hippocratic School of Medicine revolutionized ancient Greek medicine. However, the achievements of the writers of the Hippocratic Corpus, the practitioners, and Hippocrates himself were often conflated. Thus, very little is known about what he actually thought, wrote, or did. Hippocrates is commonly portrayed as the paragon of the ancient physicians and credited with coining the Hippocratic Oath, which is still relevant and in use today. And I'm sure we have all heard the famous quote attributed to him, let food be thy medicine and let medicine be thy food. But as the researcher Diana Cardenas in 2013 shows, this quote cannot be found anywhere in the Hippocratic writings. Diana discovered that the quote actually started emerging around 1926 and onwards and really started to get popular in the 1970s. There are good reasons for the quote to go around though. Hippocrates considered nutrition one of the main tools that a doctor could use. More than that, dietary measures play a lead part in the original oath of Hippocrates. In modern translations of the oath, the central importance of diet is often somewhat hidden. The English Wikipedia, for example, turns it into, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injure or to do wrongdoings. But the original Greek oath, literally translated, says, I will apply dietic and lifestyle measures to help the sick to my best ability and judgment. I will protect them from harm and injustice. It's quite a different meaning. Yes. <laughs> In another text by Hippocrates, De Alimento, there's another statement about food which reads, In food, excellent medicine can be found. In food, bad medicine can be found. Good and bad are relative. So true. He also penned that all diseases begin in the gut. And to go into this a little bit farther now, I think Lucy's going to read a short article for us. So this is mostly uh, the article Ancient Greek Wisdom for Healthy Gut and Immune System by Maria Bernardis. And then I'm just going to like expand on a couple of points. The word diet comes from the ancient Greek dieta, which means the way of life. In ancient Greece, a diet was about good health and one component of that was food. Good health required the nurturing of the mind, body, and soul. It's all connected. The diet was a key component to ensuring good gut health and a healthy immune system. The ancient Greeks also noted the correlation and the link between the gut and brain health as well as emotional health. The gut plays an important role in our emotional health, and our digestion actually plays a key role in our natural immunity to diseases. The gut helps keep toxins at bay. A healthy gut will have the ability to break down or neutralize the toxins that may have been taken in along with some food or the environment. It breaks down the food and then helps in the extraction of essential nutrients that the body needs to perform. The gut has an entire ecosystem of bacteria and yeast, some beneficial to us and others toxic. 
Like all ecosystems, the delicate balance of the digestive tract can be altered by various toxins, including antibiotics and other drugs, chemicals like chlorine and fluoride in our water, food additives and preservatives, GMOs, stimulants like coffee, and an overabundance of difficult to digest foods. When the balance of microorganisms in your gut is out of balance and the bad bacteria quote unquote proliferate, these bacteria produce toxins which can weaken your immune response. They also interfere with the proper absorption of nutrients into your bloodstream. It is vitally important to therefore take good care of the gut and to keep the good bacteria thriving. Now let's look at a few examples of taking care of your gut and the overall health of your immune system. So we have three examples here of things that you can do in your own life. Some are really easy to do, some take a little bit more effort, but all of these can help dramatically shift the gut biome. The first one is wholesome and organic, fresh, even local when possible foods. So as far as organic food goes, I feel like most people now know the insane amount of chemicals not only dusted on top of, but even as in the case of Roundup, genetically spliced into the food we eat. By purchasing organic foods, you can at least avoid these issues. However, unfortunately, much organic food is still shipped across state and national borders, leaving a big carbon footprint and being picked far before actual ripeness to account for long transit times. And that dramatically changes the flavor, texture, and nutritional profile. Whereas when you buy local or dun dun dun, grow your own food, I promise it's not as hard as it sounds, you are then staying in tune with the earth and her natural seasons and often reaping the benefits of more delicious and nutritionally dense food. If you have seasonal allergies, eating a spoonful daily of raw, unfiltered, local honey during allergy season can reduce your symptoms due to small amounts of the pollen included from those same local plants that are bringing about your cough and congestion. So that's an example of just like the medicine of your local environment. As a second example for something you can do to improve the health of your gut biome is to incorporate fermented foods. This is from the Harvard Health blog. Naturally fermented foods are getting a lot of attention from health experts these days because they may help strengthen your gut microbiome. The 100 trillion or so bacteria and microorganisms that live in your digestive tract. Researchers are beginning to link these tiny creatures to both the cause and healing of all sorts of health conditions from obesity to neurodegenerative diseases. Fermented foods are preserved using an age-old process that not only boosts the food's shelf life and nutritional value, but can also give your body a dose of healthy probiotics, which are live microorganisms crucial to healthy digestion, says Dr. David Ludwig, a professor of nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. The foods that give your body beneficial probiotics are those fermented using natural processes. For sauerkraut, for example, you literally just shred cabbage and mix it with a little salt, then add weights to keep the cabbage pressing down into its own juices. Then, in a matter of days, you can start enjoying homemade sauerkraut. Delicious. Delicious. 
ate that shit on everything. Fermented foods contain microorganisms such as bacteria and yeast that use the nutrients in the food as an energy source. The result is a transformation of the original food into one with organic acids and other compounds beneficial for health. Live cultures are found not only in yogurts, but also in pickled vegetables like kimchi, sauerkraut, and some pickles. There's kombucha, which is a fermented tea. Um, there is miso, which is a fermented soybean paste. I mean, there's like an infinite amount of things that you could ferment. Some people ferment hot sauces. Um, but basically anything that you ferment using natural processes is going to add more nutrition to that food. The final recommendation we have on things to incorporate into your diet to improve your gut health is to eat with peace and calm. I bet you weren't expecting that one. Interesting. Um, so we have a quote here by Aesop, which says, a crust eaten in peace is better than a banquet partaken in anxiety. Um, which wow. I totally, yeah, I agree with. So here we have Dr. Michael Lamb, who is going to explain a little bit more about what that means. Anytime you experience stress, the fight or flight syndrome becomes activated. That means you get prepared to either fight against the stressor or flee from it. The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or let's call it the HPA axis for short, sets in motion a cascade of biochemicals and hormones that end in the stimulation of your adrenal glands and the release of cortisol. This starts your body's fight against the effects of stress. And not only does this stress hormone affect stress, but it also affects other parts of your body. During stressful experiences, especially chronic stress, the level of cortisol in your bloodstream increases significantly. As a result, negative impacts occur on many of the body's systems, especially the digestive system. During the stress response, cortisol helps in redirecting blood flow from the digestive tract to the brain and large muscles. So like if you were running away from a tiger, then you could get your muscles going and also have a little bit more oxygen in your brain to figure out what you're going to do about it. Good luck. Good luck. If you're running from a tiger, good luck. But because of that, digestion is going to become suppressed when you experience stress. So the constant experience of stress with its accompanying high levels of cortisol places a huge burden on your body due to stopping this digestive process. So when you are eating and experiencing stress at the same time, a number of things take place. Which is a huge thing that people do is stress eating or out of depression or anxiety. Well, and also it just might be some things that like we never really thought about before. Like the fact that the exact same sandwich when eaten, when you're like really pissed off about something and you're just like thinking about how mad you are while you're eating that sandwich. <laughs> just rage just eating. Just rage <laughs> eating like a baby and Jay or something. <laughs> but like, but at the same time, if you were eating that sandwich on a blanket on a mountain bluff looking over the ocean there's like a fucking rainbow and like birds flying around your head or whatever um you know that is not only your emotional experience but also the actual effectiveness with which your body can absorb the nutrients from that food is going to be dramatically different in those two situations 
Okay, well, so if you want to know what actually happens in your body if you are like radiating that sandwich, basically your digestive process and the absorption of nutrients becomes compromised. So this leads to indigestion and irritation of the mucus lining of your gut. Inflammation increases due to this irritation, which then leads to an increase in cortisol to fight the inflammation. This becomes a source of stress, which impacts your already overburdened adrenal glands, and the cycle once again sets in motion a stress response. So this, over time, can lead to diarrhea, constipation, leaky gut, to an imbalance of your microbiome. And in your gut, this is also where your enteric nervous system resides, often called the second brain. This leads you to feeling emotions in your gut, like when people say the expression, oh, I've got a gut feeling about this, or like, oh, my stomach just dropped. You know, there's a very physical way that emotions are being felt and processed in your guts. Yeah, I mean, if you are overtaken with anxiety or something traumatic, you know, people will literally throw up because the emotion's so intense. Right, and the crazy thing is that the enteric nervous system, this system in your gut, it contains more neurons than your spine and it produces neurotransmitters such as dopamine, serotonin, um, that's all happening in your guts. They also say there is some evidence that traces of DMT are created in the gut, I believe. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's in the gut or the brain or I, I know your body definitely does produce it. But basically these neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, these are the same ones that work in the brain to help regulate emotional responses. And here's an interesting fact, uh, serotonin, you know how a lot of people take like antidepressants or something because they feel like their brain isn't producing enough serotonin. Well, about 95% of the serotonin used in your body occurs in the gut. So then, knowing this information, how can we shift out of the stress response and allow our bodies to direct that energy instead towards healthy digestion while we're eating? One suggestion that we have is to connect more deeply with your food, which sounds like uh, American pie. Kind of, yeah, that's not. <laughs> I just mean it in a way of like being more mindful, like thinking about what it is that you're doing while you're eating. Yeah, the eat, eat with peace and clarity and calm. Yeah, well, it's considering where your food comes from versus thinking of food as like the end product or not even thinking about it at all. And, you know, uh, not to make anything too religious or not, but having a practice of saying some type of prayer over your food or even if you would rather just take a moment. What I like to do before I eat personally is to think about all the people, the plants, the animals, where this food was grown and how it traveled and how it was processed and got to you and just feel the gratitude that all those things all those puzzle pieces came together for you to be able to eat today and that's something that people take for granted and they just mindlessly shovel things into their body and forget all the work that and all the forces that had to conspire together for you just to have a meal 
No, exactly. So this is from mindful.org. Unless you are a hunter-gatherer or a sustenance farmer, honestly, in today's society, we have all become ever more disconnected from our food. Many of us don't even consider where a meal comes from beyond the supermarket packaging. This is a loss because eating offers an incredible opportunity to connect us more deeply to the natural world, to the elements, and to each other. When we pause to consider all of the people involved in the meal that has arrived on your plate, from the loved ones and yourself who prepared it, to those who stocked the shelves, to those who planted and harvested the raw ingredients, to those who supported them, it's hard not to feel grateful and interconnected. Be mindful of the water, the soil, other elements that were part of its creation as you sit down to eat whatever it is that you're eating. You can reflect on the cultural traditions that brought you this food, the recipes generously shared from friends or brought from a distance place and time to be handed down in the family. As you consider everything that went into the meal, it becomes effortless to experience and express gratitude to all of the people who gave their time and effort, the elements of the universe that contributed their share, our friends or ancestors who shared recipes, and even the beings who may have given their lives to a part of creating this meal. With just a little more mindfulness like this, we may begin to make wiser choices about sustainability and health in our food, not just for us, but for the whole planet. So to sum it up, there's a quote by Heraclitus that says, Day by day, what you choose, what you think, and what you do is who you become. Your body is quite literally made out of whatever you put into it, not only in regards to the physical material, but also the energetic vibrations, which is another layer of looking at the common trope, you are what you eat. All right. A little later in today's episode, we are going to dive back into some of the plants, habits, and rituals you can use to heal and uplift yourself physically or spiritually. But before we do that, I thought it would be fun to look at some extremely far out examples of eating that we definitely do not recommend trying at home. Once again, it's that special time of the month where we celebrate a divine encounter or mind-blowing figure from the past, present, or future. That's right, it's time for what we at Fabled Remedies like to call the Miracle of the Month. This month, we are celebrating the man with an iron gut, Mr. Eat-All himself, Monsieur Mouth, or Michel Lotito, the man who ate a plane. Ate a plane. And I think that wasn't even all, was it? Oh, no. I'm going to get into that. He ate a lot of shit, okay? (laughs) But he literally ate a plane. So, Michel was a French entertainer who was born in the 1950s. From the age of nine, he developed an unusual tolerance and a fondness for eating dangerous objects like glass and metal. According to legend, this first bout of unusual eating occurred as a young man when a glass he was drinking from shattered and Michel began chewing the fragments. Why this sort of thing was encouraged, nobody can really say, but the young man was soon examined and tested by doctors. 
They determined his ability was unique, attributing it to a condition known as pica. This gave Michel a taste for unusual, non-nutritive items. Fortunately for him, doctors soon determined that he had an incredibly resilient digestive system with a super thick stomach lining and intestines. Oh, hey ladies. <coughs> <laughs> That's what you put Got on uh, your Tinder, what I'm looking for. Super thick stomach lining over Don't here. Don't be in my DMs unless you got a really <laughs> thick stomach lining and intestines. <laughs> As a result, he could safely consume just about anything. And so an incredible career as a French entertainer began. Over the course of Mr. Edall's career, his diet included 18 bicycles, no. 7 TV sets, Dude. 2 beds, metal frames, Yikes. 15 supermarket buggies, Mm-mm. a computer, Okay. A coffin, handles and all. Now, why? <laughs> a pair of skis. Okay. And 500 meters or 1,600 foot of steel chains. Jeez. And six chandeliers. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> sh- my, I mean, like, when... Like, I feel like that must have been the only thing that he ever did. (laughs) Just Just the sheer amount of time that that, I mean, my gosh, that's, (laughs) and he ate a plane, right? Like, that doesn't even include the plane. So that's that's pretty dang impressive. That's nuts. But he didn't stop there. No, he hungered for a real challenge. And in 1978, he started a two-year-long process of consuming an entire Cessna 150 airplane. Yikes. It's estimated that he ate over nine tons of metal between 1959 and 1997. What? Nine tons yeah. of metal passing through Incredible. that one man's digestive tract. <laughs> like, can you it's imagine? Like, how does that. Like, does your stomach actually break that down? Like, apparently, his how does it? I mean, wow, (laughs) the body. This is why it's the miracle of the month, folks. Yeah, your body is a miracle. That's insane. So, uh, (laughs) his method for eating all this metal was to break it into small pieces before attempting to eat it. He then drank mineral oil and continued to drink water while swallowing the metal bits. This acted as a lubricant to help the metal slide down his throat. Mm. He seemed to have no problem passing his unusual diet and claimed to not suffer any ill effects from his consumption of substances typically considered poisonous. I mean, there's definitely, like, chemicals inside, like, old TVs and stuff. Yeah. I mean... However, his passing on June 25th, 2007, at the early age of 57, could speak otherwise. Either way, Michel Lotito lived an incredibly impressive life, and his accomplishments are well deserving of the title of a miracle. And as the famous quote goes, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. And in this case, I guess that makes Michel a true transformer and robot in disguise. Remember folks, it's never too late to make some simple changes 
The human body is a powerful vehicle of transformation with an unbelievable ability to heal and process toxins. Once again, please don't try any of this at home, but if you're in doubt about the state of your health or telling yourself it's too late to lose a few pounds, it's definitely not. If someone can eat a plane, you can stop eating so many Doritos and processed sugar. That was our Miracle of the Month. An incredible story, a mind-blowing performer, and definitely he deserves his place in history. Wow. So now, to bring us into the music break for today, I'm super excited. I have a little segment where we're going to show you a piece of artwork from one of my favorite artists. His name is Hieronymus Bosch who was a Northern European painter of the late Middle Ages. His work utilizes striking and sometimes seemingly surreal imagery and is some of the earliest what you could call psychedelic artwork painted in the classical style by a true master of his craft. He was born in 1450 and around 1486 he joined the Brotherhood of Our Lady, a local religious organization devoted to the Virgin Mary. In a future show we will definitely take a deeper look into his life and work, but going with today's theme we wanted to focus on one of his most famous works which is a triptych oil painting on oak panels called The Garden of Earthly Delights. When the triptych's wings are closed, the design of the outer panels becomes visible. Rendered in a green-gray grisaille, the outer panels are generally thought to depict the creation of the world, showing greenery beginning to clothe the still pristine earth. Inside, starting with the left panel, sometimes known as the joining of Adam and Eve, it depicts a scene from the paradise of the Garden of Eden, commonly interpreted as the moment when God presents Eve to Adam. On the center panel, the garden is teeming with male and female nudes, together with a variety of animals, plants, fruits, and marvelous architecture. Many of the numerous human figures revel in an innocent, self-absorbed joy as they engage in a wide range of activities. Some appear to enjoy sensory pleasures and others play unselfconsciously in the water and yet others cavort in the meadows with a variety of animals, seemingly at one with nature. I also want to note the abundance of hidden mushroom motifs in many of his artworks, but especially in the first two panels of this work, academics still argue on what could have inspired such mind-blowing artwork. But personally, I think in his case, he was hiding the truth within his work for those with the eyes to see. And I'll put up a few examples in the video if you watch this on YouTube so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Next, the right panel is where we want to focus a little extra attention on today though. The right panel illustrates hell and depicts a world in which humans have succumbed to temptations that lead to evil and reap eternal damnation. Demons feasting and torturing man, animal and human hybrids and burning cities fill this haunted landscape beautifully depicting the sins and lust of humanity. And I have to say lots and lots of butt stuff. It's definitely a bad trip. <laughs> <laughs> it does not a lot of look, butt stuff. <laughs> it does not look like a place 
that I would want to hang out. No. A lot of demon torture. So, on this panel of hell, uh, there is a little hat-wielding pink demon right here. I'm going to put up a picture in the video and in the description I'll put some links to this kind of stuff uh, wherever you're listening to the podcast so you can see it. And this guy is sucking out and consuming musical notes from a piece of sheet music written upon a poor damned man's ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly like this painting is, I mean, I feel like you could spend hours and hours and hours looking at this thing. It's got and so I literally many, have. yeah, there's so many layers same. of details. Um, I'll try to put some links. You can find some really high resolution uh, pictures of this and zoom into all the different parts and you can go on a journey I mean it's a beautiful piece of art mind-blowing and uh, we thought it would be pretty fun for today's musical break to offer you a chance to enjoy the musical stylings and genius of Bosch's butt music <laughs> we are going to play this demon butt music for you and hope you'll enjoy it with your ears as much as this pink demon entity does with his mouth. When, <laughs> when we get back from the break, we're going to spin things back into the light and drop some knowledge that will hopefully have you feeling inspired and uplifted to take your health into your own control and shake up your eating habits for the better. But in the meantime... But in the meantime, <laughs> we hope that you will enjoy... The Demon Eating Butt Music by Hieronymus Bosch. And it is beautiful. This is a modern composition of the piece. I'll put links so you can find it. We're going to play that for you. And I'll see you on the other side of the break. today I received a lot of confusing messages from our society growing up about what is actually healthy versus what corporate lobbyists want us to think. I tried all kinds of different diets but rarely felt an overall sense of wellness. 
A few years ago, one of my dearest friends passed away from breast cancer, barely in her 30s, and the resulting sense of powerlessness and a feeling that there were forces at play I didn't understand led me down the rabbit hole. (laughs) I started with the documentary The C Word, which made me think about lifestyle habits and environmental contaminants in a way I never had. We assume if something is for sale at your local grocery store, somebody must have made sure it won't harm you, right? Sure, we all know extra junk food means extra weight, but what about the sulfates and the parabens in your shampoo? So a little bit more about Cellular Detox 101. This is from one of my favorite herbalists, Ariana Ayales, and um, she explains... As much as it may hurt to face it, we are living in a toxic world. At the root of most diseases, from migraines to cancer, are toxins and pollutants snaking their way into our bodies. To combat heavy metal exposure, environmental and atmospheric toxins, viruses, excessive antibiotics, pharmaceuticals, and other liver-clogging chemicals, cellular detox is a vital process we need now more than ever to counteract the negative impact of common daily toxins, many of which are difficult to impossible to avoid. So 10 of the common daily toxins that we interact with that we may not necessarily think about are one, carcinogens and harmful compounds from food, which we talked a little bit about earlier. Two, clothing, carpets, and furniture, often which are sprayed in anti-inflammatory chemicals, which are actually highly carcinogenic also. Then we have chemicals in agriculture and cleaning products. There are contaminants in drinking water, heavy metals, plastics, and microplastics, mold, nonstick cookware, which is something a lot of people don't think about, but um, there are definitely studies that have shown that those chemicals are not good for your body. Also, there's other environmental toxins like parabens, like we mentioned earlier, fluoride, which is in many, many places drinking water. Also, there is radiation and electromagnetic fields, EMFs which if you haven't looked into it, yes, it is a real thing. Yes, studies have been done. EMFs are bad for your health and can give you cancer. There's plenty of peer-reviewed medical studies showing that. And the last one is stress and trauma, which we did talk about a little bit earlier with the how you ingest things and the state of your mind. So when we work to actively eliminate these harmful compounds, we can powerfully reverse the negative effects that cause headaches, fatigue, respiratory and digestive problems, and many more illnesses that are all too often treated with metal-heavy prescription drugs. Talking a little bit more about how the gut and our emotions tie together, this is an excerpt by Dr. Irina Mat. Vekova, I believe is how her name is pronounced. And this is from Digestive Intelligence, a holistic vision of your second brain, the liver, and the gallbladder. There are many references in both ancient and modern medical literature to the influence of the liver on our mood, emotions, and intellectual state, and instructions for how to cleanse the organ as well. 
According to traditional Chinese medicine, for example, the liver holds the soul. It is associated with the fire element, and it is considered more important than the heart, an organ full of energy and powers, making it extremely important to cleanse the liver regularly. The liver manages everything, including moderating mental activity. In traditional Chinese medicine, it is thought that if qi, our vital energy, is unable to flow along the liver meridian, it ends up concentrating in the organ and showing up as irritability, insomnia, depression, anguish, melancholy, and doubt. The phlegm gets stuck and the mind clouds over. The gallbladder, for its part, governs decision-making, courage, and cowardice. If a patient's gallbladder doesn't function well and accumulates bile, he will have a fearful attitude to life. For this reason, in traditional Chinese medicine, liver flushing is the treatment of choice for the maintenance of health. I notice it kind of talks about the concepts of like phlegm and bile, which are two of the four humors of the Homeric medicines. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of overlapping of the different types of humors. And also it's like kind of similar to some of the Ayurvedic medicine um, and the four different sort of styles. Um, In the U.S., it's estimated that as many as 40% of people suffer from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, many of whom do not even realize. When you know how to detox your liver, you know how to cleanse your mind, as innumerable treatises on traditional natural medical wisdom from around the world affirm. Liver flushing has a place in traditional medicine and is considered a very important therapeutic step. Following the development of modern medicine, we have lost the ancient tradition of cleansing and flushing the liver and internal organs. Unfortunately, when a patient is permanently sad, lacks enthusiasm, and is in emotional trough, that is to say, melancholic, a doctor usually prescribes antidepressants or tranquilizers, and this, in its turn, increases the saturation and congestion of the liver, making a liver flush and cleanse more necessary than ever. As well as medications for the treatment of mood disorders, integrative medicine recommends the additional adoption of a light detoxifying diet, infusions of medicinal plants suitable for the liver, and liver flushing. So one time proven method that evidence suggests to reduce liver triglycerides and increase expression of genes that prevent fat from being stored in the liver is fasting. Fasting is also associated with increased lifespan and the reduced risk of diseases including cancer and diabetes. Fasting is one of those things that I think in our culture often like I associated not eating with oh being anorexic or you know maybe something that you read about in the Bible but never really considered the possibility of integrating it into your day-to-day life but the more I've been reading about it the more that I am learning about the insane potential for really rapid healing in a fairly short amount of time and 
the only thing that you have to do is not eat. (laughs) Like just give your body a break. It's crazy how your body is constantly trying to heal itself. And yet digestion takes up an insane portion of our energy on a daily basis. And so by the mere fact of not putting more food into your system, allowing your digestive system to relax, then your body's natural healing methods can take over. So I wanted to kind of break it down a little bit on what happens hour by hour, what to expect in a fast, what's happening in your body. So this is Dr. Eric Berg, and he explains what that looks like. Our bodies have developed over a long period of time and have adapted to starvation many times. So we get unique proteins that turn on to help your brain and body function better when it goes without intaking food for certain periods of time. Our bodies are not adapted to the frequency of eating like we do in modern times, often every three hours or more. So I'm going to read his breakdown on what happens in the body over a 72-hour fasting period. At 12 hours without food, we have a spike in growth hormone, which is an anti-aging, fat burning, joint healing. It causes protein synthesis, making new proteins, and this hormone gets triggered automatically. You can also increase that by exercise. But some people even go so far as to inject growth hormone, but you get it naturally through exercise or 12 hours of fasting. At 18 hours, you start to develop autophagy. So this is like your body's spring cleaning. You start recycling old damaged proteins and microbes, turning those into new amino acids that your body can actually use. This also reduces amyloid plaquing, which is a huge component in Alzheimer's, having that plaque building up in your brain. So how it does that is by recycling these cellular proteins that aren't working anymore and then renewing the tissues. This starts at 18 hours, but it keeps going more the longer that you do it. At 24 hours, you start to deplete the glycogen reserve. This is a storage supply of glucose in your liver. The more your liver is depleted of glycogen, the more it will run on ketones as an alternative fuel. I'm sure you guys have heard of the keto diet. But if you have a fatty liver, like we talked about that you might from having all of these toxins, your body at 24 hours is going to be able to start using that fat and start turning that into ketones. So your body is finally able to tap into stored energy and run more on those ketones, which is a superior fuel. These are an appetite suppressant, so your hunger goes away, and there are antioxidants. You're building up your antioxidant reserve, so your body runs more on oxygen and not CO2. And because ketones are a much more efficient fuel than glucose, your body and thyroid in particular doesn't have to work as hard. Also at 24 hours, your inflammation starts to drop significantly. If you add vitamin D to that, it's going to speed it up even more. So any type of conditions that involve inflammatory states, autoimmune type of conditions like arthritis, gut healing, all of that starts to improve around 24 hours. At this time, you start increasing stem cells in the gut and also in the brain, um, BDNF, which is a factor that makes new brain cells, 
all of this begins to repair at 24 hours. You would think that you'd be losing muscle protein now, but actually certain genes that are sparing proteins, they're not using muscle protein, so the efficiency of the fuel is much better. At 48 hours, you really start to stimulate the stem cells, and these are undifferentiated cells, so they can turn into whatever tissue the body needs. More healing, more repair, more anti-aging. At this stage, you have shrinkage of tumors, lessened risk of cancers, and um, your body is generating mitochondria. Now, if you make it to 72 hours, then you have even more stimulation of stem cells and even better immune function. It's really a good idea to do this gradually, periodically, um, because most people have nutritional deficiencies and you don't want to get dizzy, so it might not be a good idea to jump right into doing a 72-hour fast, but maybe starting with intermittent fasting, which I feel like a lot of people have probably heard about because it's become really popular recently, but that is where you might not even take a full 24 hours. You just start with, in a day, that you fast for 16 hours and then you only eat during an eight hour period of time. So that might be a good way to kind of ease into it. But as you can see that it's really once you get past that 18 hours or right at the 18 hours that a lot of the really good effects start to happen. So it, depending on what you're working with, it might be something to work up to. So one more thing that I wanted to mention about fasting is um, so we've talked about how it can dramatically change circumstances in your body and physical health, but it also affects mental health, not just in the area of emotions, but in like cognitive health. Mark Matson is a professor of neuroscience at the John Hopkins University, and he studies the cellular and molecular mechanisms that underlie multiple neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And they have published several papers and studies that discuss how simply fasting twice a week could significantly lower the risk of developing cognitive diseases. That's because fasting does good things for the brain, and this is evident by all of the beneficial neurochemical changes that happen in the brain when we fast. It improves cognitive function, it increases neurotrophic factors, it increases stress resistance, and reduces inflammation. I think it's interesting how he mentions fasting twice a week because one of the places many people have heard of fasting is in the Bible, and in the era of early Christianity, it was common to fast two days out of the week and to eat normally on five. Now, for fasting, there are certain conditions where it might be dangerous for people to fast based on their health circumstances or, um, you know, like if you're a pregnant woman or I mean, there's a variety of circumstances. So if you do want to try to get some detoxification, but don't feel like fasting is the way to go, then you can also start with some detoxifying herbs. Some that I use really commonly are moringa, ginger root, chlorella hibiscus, uh, cilantro. And uh, it's interesting because a lot of these herbs that are super great for detoxifying the body grow in early spring. Things that you might think of as either weeds or just the thir first things that start to pop up in your yard after wintertime. Those are dandelion, 
red clover, stinging nettle. So there are a lot of options out there for moving towards detoxifying your system on a lot of different levels. I have an article here from this site called Healthy Hildegard, which is all about the health advice of this ancient Christian mystic called Hildegard von Bingen, who we actually, interestingly enough, have an LP of some music that she composed that was sung by a choir, and it is like really cool and ethereal, and it feels it definitely changes the atmosphere in our house when we have that on. Um, but so I was really interested to find that she didn't just do music and art, but she also talked a lot about nutrition. And on this website, they bring a lot of her teachings into a sort of more modern understanding. So this article talks about the spiritual benefits of fasting. Most versions of modern fasting originated as a religious practice. Cultures from around the world have historically practiced fasting as a traditional cultural or religious ritual. Some people find that a spiritual fast is a helpful way to manage a difficult life situation, overcome a test of faith, or reconnect with nature. Common motivations for a spiritual fast might include mourning, seeking redemption, renewal of faith, seeking a sense of purpose or direction. I know many people struggle with that. Struggling with a major life choice, overcoming addiction or a crisis, or just holistic health and wellness treatment. So there's a lot of different reasons that you could come at fasting, not just about resetting your physical health, but to also help reset your priorities. Modern living affects more than just our bodies. The stress, information overload, and hurried pace of modern life is harming our minds as well. We're overwhelmed with digital stimulation. We don't get enough time in quiet contemplation or really even sleep. And our free time is often filled with more distractions and noise. All of this can lead to serious imbalances in our lives. Because the physical results of these imbalances are easiest to see, we often overlook other aspects of our being, namely our spiritual health. Mind, body, spirit, it's all connected. The spiritual benefits of fasting are also personal, but we've gathered some universal spiritual benefits of fasting that should give you a good idea of what to expect from your fast. In general, fasting can offer you the following. Spiritual clarity and having a greater sense of where you stand with your faith or your spirituality. A soul cleanse, reminding you of the connection between the vessel of your body and your soul. Without the distraction of your physical needs, your soul will benefit from the effects of fasting. You will be able to purge the unhealthy things you carry and empty the burdensome thoughts and those things that have been weighing down your soul. Also, renewed faith. Fasting is a great way to renew your faith. It can reignite your desire to live according to your faith and align your life with your beliefs, whatever those are. Also, the practice of spiritual fasting builds focus and awareness. As such, the spiritual benefits of healthy fasting include a stronger sense of your connection with the universe. It makes you less self-centered because it's a way to free yourself from the confines of what you want or think that you need. 
Instead, the spiritual aspect of fasting uses your inward spiritual focus to turn your awareness towards something greater. Your fleeting physical wants and needs will be less likely to weigh you down. You will feel more aware of those around you, and your perspective will be that of connectivity. And the final thing the article mentions is transcendent empowerment, which, whoa, what a term. Uh, But basically, the way they describe it is that fasting hones your ability to find empowerment in those things that reside beyond your physical body. You will learn how to find deep satisfaction in things other than your physical needs and wants. You will build a stronger connection with your spiritual existence, and in doing so, you will be able to transcend those fleeting physical desires. Hunger comes and goes, but the benefit of spiritual empowerment is the gift of a lifetime. So I love the way that that article explains sort of the more multifaceted aspect of the experience you will be going through if you do decide to choose fasting, because it's not just about nutrition. It's not just about food. It's really a journey. So honestly, I have like so much information on fasting here. It's way more than I actually need. So to kind of wrap it all up, then here are just a few recommendations for if it is something that you decide to do, how to treat yourself during that process. And um, these are more from that uh, wisdom from Hildegard von Bingen. And she recommends to allow yourself plenty of rest and relaxation. Don't be so hard on yourself. Include reading, meditating, and increase sleep time into your practice because your body is healing on a whole entirely other level while you're sleeping. It would be a good idea to dedicate some time to explore your spirituality, even if that's something that you don't commonly do, to just sort of see what comes up for you during that time. And help to do that by seeking out moments of peace and solitude where you are fasting from sort of the rigors of daily life as well. Ideally, spend some time in nature because that is incredibly healing for our psyche and our bodies. And also don't be afraid to write down or journal your thoughts, goals, feelings, noticing, being aware of the things that are coming up to you because there is a lot of knowledge in that. Sweet. Yeah. Through this process, I'm definitely learning a lot of great information for my own personal self. I know that I've I know that dad bodies are in, but (laughs) I can definitely uh, (laughs) planning on taking some of this information and learning with you all. And hopefully we can all go through this process together of learning. That's what this podcast is all about for us. So now we're going to change gears and I'm going to read a few stories from a chapter of the book, A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch by Joshua Cutchin. Yeah, that's quite a... Excellent title. Yeah. (laughs) He opens up this chapter with a quote from the Holy Eucharist, uh, right number two, the Book of Common Prayer. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. 
A tale from the Kashinawa people of South America explains the origins of ayahuasca. A hunter spied an anaconda that rose out of a lake and transformed into a woman. Taken with her beauty, he abandoned his wife and made love to her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it didn't really take very much. Like <laughs> a literal like snake Damn. mirage. You're like, yeah, it's Saw good that enough. Thick ass snake That's booty. Good enough. <laughs> Afterwards, the Anaconda woman squeezed leaf sap into his eyes and oh. took him with her into her home in the lake. Mm. He lived there among the snake people, but was warned to never drink at their Nixipai ayahuasca. Of course, he did take some after a time, and was horrified when the visions of serpents appeared. Oh, he knew she was a snake from the get-go. Uh, well, what was he yeah, expecting? That didn't stop him from getting some. Like you got tree sap in your eyes for a month, <laughs> and you're living <laughs> under a lake, and like that's what freaks you out? That you're starting to see visions of serpents after you drink ayahuasca? Come on, man. In his fear, he shouted that the snakes would consume him. The anaconda people were insulted by these accusations, and sensing their hostility, the man wished to return to his mortal family. Like, honey, I'm back. <laughs> One of the fish from the lake assisted in his escape, putting leaf juice in his eyes, and he was allowed to return to his original wife, with whom he sired a child. A year later, his reptilian family caught and wounded him. He returned to the human village and revealed the Nixipai recipe to his family before dying. From his corpse sprang the capy vine, Mm. which is used in ayahuasca ceremonies today. Now it goes into a concept called eating the god. Eating the god is a very old, very widespread tradition. At its core, it is related to the undoubtedly familiar concept that consuming a vanquished enemy would bestow their abilities upon the eater. The logic extends that if a piece of god was eaten, Godlike abilities, including access to other planes of existence, would be conveyed upon the eater. Aztecs made edible effigies of their deities out of grain, throwing them into the street so that the masses might partake of the god's strength and virtue. Ancient Greeks consumed the raw flesh of a bull meant to represent Dionysus, just as the Anu of Japan and Russia fatted a cub for the sole purpose of consuming the bear god. Oh. In Indonesian folklore, the dismembered corpse of Hanuweli, or the coconut girl, oh. grew into plants that have since become the islanders' staples. It is obvious how such themes represent themselves in Soma and in Ayahuasca, where god, plant, and drink are one. The Christian communion, with its feast of Christ's body, the bread and the blood is wine, is the perfect example in which modern society has supplemented such concepts. Wine, should be noted, could also be argued to possess quasi-entheogenic qualities. Variations on this cultural theme of eating the god also include the consumption of anything growing out of a god, as in the Kashinawa myth, or consuming a deity's bodily fluids in some tribes, ayahuasca is said to be the actual blood and urine of the great cosmic serpent Yub. Oh. For his 1999 book, Passport to the Cosmos, 
John Mack selected several accounts that came from experiencers who self-identified as recurring abductees. One of these individuals was a Sangoma healer from South Africa named Credo Mutwa, the son of a Zulu mother and a Christian father. Mutwa grew up in a world where strange spirits and extraterrestrials were common. As a result, he felt caught between, on one hand, Western thought, including the Christian religion, and African thought, which accepts these things without question. Mutwa spoke to Mac of the Mantindani. These are beings identical to gray aliens whom he had encountered many times before. In traditional lore, these beings could come from the sky, abduct, traumatize, torture, and impregnate human beings. Pertinent to our conversation is the interview Mutua gave in October 5th, 1999, where he claimed that the gray aliens, sir, are edible. Oh. Mutua claimed to have heard of several individuals who had eaten the sky gods. It wasn't until a friend gave him a small lump of gray, rather dry stuff, which he said was the flesh that he believed in the tales. After climbing into a hole that the man had dug behind his hut, they shared in a sacrament. He was told that to partake in eating this, it had to be done underground or they would die. Yeah, I wonder what that could mean, like radiation or just hiding from, I don't know. Mutwa and his friend woke the next day to find their tongues swollen and their skin broken out in hives. They were unable to walk and begin leaking blood out of their orifices. Oh my gosh. Coming Multiple <laughs> orifices, not orifice, orifices. Coming close to death, eventually though, they recovered and their skin began to peel. A sort of dementia set in. Mm. This is what Credo had to say in the interview. We started laughing like real Looney Tunes. It was a ha 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 day after day for the slightest things. We started laughing our heads off for hours until you were nearly exhausted. And then the laughing went away. And then a strange thing happened. A thing which my friend said was the goal which those who ate the flesh of a Montandani wanted to achieve. It was as if we had ingested a strange substance, a drug, and a drug like no other on this earth. Suddenly our feelings were heightened. When you drank water, it was as if you had drank a wine of some kind. Water became as delicious as a man-made drink. Food began to taste amazingly. Every feeling was heightened, and it's indescribable. It was as if I was one with the very heart of the universe. I cannot describe it in any other way. And these feelings of amazing intensity lasted for two months. Oh gosh. When I listened to music, it was as if there was music behind the music, behind the music. When I painted pictures, which is what I do for a living, and when I was holding a particular color on the tip of my brush, it was as if there were other colors in the colors. It was an indescribable thing, sir. Even now, I cannot describe it to you. Sounds like he just had like a pretty wild two month long trip. <laughs> I mean, that's whoa, medicine journey, eating gray alien. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't know. It's an incredible story. Mutwa is a extremely interesting example of a human being. I highly recommend looking on YouTube or Googling him and checking out some of his artwork. He also has a long-form interview with David Icke if you're into the whole reptilian thing and some stories from the Zulu Nation and their mythologies that actually encounter 
a lot of different some robotic and alien creatures super interesting stuff and i just thought that was a really interesting story where it's almost like he had uh, an ordeal poison where they thought they were going to die for days and days and then they come out of this thing and have a two month long psychedelic trip and apparently they had to dig a hole underground to eat this alien so i don't know it's who knows if it's real or not but it's a fantastic story well i do think it's interesting though that he is like one of the most highly respected like he's not just some guy who's saying oh i ate an alien like he's the official keeper of stories right for the zulu nation he's like got all these yeah i mean he has these uh necklaces and artifacts and statues and they have this big necklaces made out of like copper and iron that actually each piece that hangs off of this necklace tells the series of stories of the creation of the world and how their people have interacted with their gods and different beings over time and yeah he is actually one of the main story keepers or was he passed away recently yeah. i think he was like 98 years old yeah he had a good um, long run but he was a legitimate shaman as legitimate as you could be yeah so who knows if you find a chunk of great alien i don't know i don't think i would do that i don't know if i would try it or not yeah maybe uh Eight or nine years ago, I definitely would have. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> you would have <laughs> not even sure. thought about I it. I would have snorted the gray <laughs> powder. I'll cut that out. <laughs> and before I pass this back over to Lucy to wrap this thing up, I'm going to read one more story from this chapter to you. Uh, this one's not exactly PG. Maybe more PG-13 rated R. But uh, definitely a fun an interesting story. On July 23rd, 1992, a man named Peter Corey, that was an Australian abductee with recurring experiences, was roused from a sleep by two beautiful but odd-looking nude women. One was over six feet tall with blonde hair and enormous eyes. The other shorter and looked Asian but to an extreme. The blonde grabbed Peter and pulled him forcefully to her breast. Oh my. In spite of his protest, the third time she tried, he bit off the tip of her nipple, which uh. became stuck in his throat. Uh. Peter said the entire experience was unnatural. You think? <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> and, felt like, and it felt like biting a plastic dummy. Ew. There wasn't any blood and he then began to cough violently to bring the nipple up that was stuck in his throat. Sentient AI sex <laughs> robots. <laughs> <laughs> when he stopped, both women were gone. The fallout from this case was also quite peculiar. The nipple stayed in his throat for three days Ew. before his coughing finally subsided. Go to a doctor, And dude. he noticed his genitals <laughs> were painful. Dude. Upon close examination... He found a woman's hair beneath his foreskin. I got a galactic STD. <laughs> that when removed, allowed the pain to subside. Corey presented the hair for genetic analysis, and the results were confounding. 
While the shaft was of a Chinese mongoloid ancestry, the analysis of the root yielded a rare Gaelic mitochondrial DNA. Okay. So I just thought that was a... That's just a really quick overview of his story. It's pretty crazy. You can look up Peter Corey on Google mm. and get some more information on that. I just thought, I mean, the guy choked on an alien nipple, so. Yeah. <laughs> so those were a few stories from the book A Trojan Feast by Joshua Cutchins. I've definitely enjoyed this book so far. It's really unique and really interesting. If you want to more deep dive on the concept of food and drink offerings when it comes to Sasquatch or fairies or aliens. This is the book. This has got to do it. Okay, so to wrap this up, we originally wanted to get this episode out around Thanksgiving. You know, life happens. (laughs) But after all this talk about food, I thought it would be nice to end with a prayer of gratitude. The following is called the Thanksgiving Address or greetings and thanks to the natural world, or, and I think this one is my favorite title, the words that come before all else of the Onondaga Nation. I got this from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. There's so much traditional, modern, and spiritual knowledge in that book, really excellent. So I know some people think about the practice of gratitude as sort of cheesy or good intentions that don't really do anything, but I challenge you to really feel the imagery and meaning behind these words and see if you don't feel more grounded, abundant, and peaceful afterwards. Today we have gathered, and when we look upon the faces around us, We see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living things. So now let us bring our minds together as one as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to our mother earth for she gives us everything that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she still continues to care for us, just as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send thanksgiving, love, and respect. Now our minds are one. We give thanks to all of the waters in the world for quenching our thirst, for providing strength and nurturing life for all beings. We know its power in its many forms. Waterfalls and rain, mists and streams, rivers and oceans, snow and ice. We are grateful that the waters are still here and meeting their responsibility to the rest of us creation. Can we agree that water is important to our lives and bring our minds together as one to send greetings and thanks to the water? Now our minds are one. We turn our thoughts to all of the fish in the water. They were instructed to cleanse and purify the water. They also give themselves to us as food. We are grateful that they continue to do their duties and we send to the fish our greetings and our thanks. Now our minds are one. Now we turn towards the vast fields of plant life 
As far as the eye can see, the plants grow, working many wonders. They sustain many life forms. With our minds gathered together, we give thanks and look forward to seeing plant life for many generations to come. Now our minds are one. With one mind, we honor and thank all the food plants we harvest from the garden, especially the three sisters who feed the people with such abundance. Since the beginning of time, the grains, vegetables, beans, and fruit have helped the people survive. Many other living things draw strength from them as well. We gather together in our minds all the plant foods and send them a greeting and thanks. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to the medicine herbs of the world. From the beginning, they were instructed to take away sickness. They are always waiting and ready to heal us. We are so happy that there are still among us those special few who remember how to use the plants for healing. With one mind, we send thanksgiving, love, and respect to the medicines and the keepers of the medicines. Now our minds are one. Standing around us, we see all the trees. The earth has many families of trees who each have their instructions and uses. Some provide shelter and shade, others fruit and beauty and many useful gifts. The maple is the leader of the trees to recognize its gift of sugar when the people need it most. Many peoples of the world recognize a tree as a symbol of peace and strength. With one mind, we greet and thank the tree life. Now our minds are one. We gather our minds together to send our greetings and thanks to all the beautiful animal life of the world who walk about with us. They have many things to teach us as people. We are grateful that they continue to share their lives with us and hope that it will always be so. Let us put our minds together as one and send our thanks to the animals. Now our minds are one. We put our minds together as one as we thank all the birds who move and fly about our heads. The Creator gave them the gift of beautiful songs. Each morning they greet the day and with their songs remind us to enjoy and appreciate life. The eagle was chosen to be their leader and to watch over the world. To all the birds, from the smallest to the largest, we send our joyful greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to the west where our grandfathers, the thunder beings, live. With lightning and thundering voices, they bring with them the water that renews life. We bring our minds together as one to send greetings and thanks to our grandfathers, the thunderers. We now send greetings and thanks to our eldest brother, the sun. Each day without fail, he travels the sky from east to west, bringing the light of a new day. He is the source of all the fires of life. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to our brother, the sun. 
Now our minds are one. We put our minds together and give thanks to our oldest grandmother, the moon, who lights the nighttime sky. She is the leader of women and she governs the movement of the ocean tides. By her changing, we measure time and it is the moon who watches over the arrival of children here on earth. Let us gather our thanks for Grandmother Moon together in a pile, layer upon layer of gratitude, and then joyfully fling that pile of thanks high into the night sky that she will know. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to our grandmother, the moon. We gather our minds to greet and thank the enlightened teachers who have come to help throughout the ages. When we forget how to live in harmony, they remind us of the way we were instructed to live as people. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to these caring teachers. Now our minds are one. We now turn our thoughts to the Creator, or Great Spirit, and send greetings and thanks for all the gifts of creation. Everything we need to live a good life is here on Mother Earth. For all the love that is still around us, we gather our minds together as one and send our choicest words of greetings and thanks to the Creator. Now our minds are one. I've had a lot of fun. I hope that you are enjoying it. My name is Grizzly. We ask you, please share the show with the people you love and check out fabledandremedies.com. Send us any stories that you have, any fun, strange, mysterious, paranormal stuff. Send it to us, and maybe we can feature it on a future show. It's been real. Oh, 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 oh,